Hello and welcome to Data is Plural, the podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Singervine. This episode's guest is Elena Kondo, who, with colleagues at the Minneapolis Fed and Census Bureau, built the Income Distributions and Dynamics in America dataset, featured in the October 11th, 2023 edition of the Data is Plural newsletter. Without further ado, here we go. My name is Elena Kondo. I'm a senior economist at the Minneapolis Fed in the research department. I'm very excited to be on your podcast today to talk about an exciting data set and resource called IDA, which stands for Income Distributions and Dynamics in America. So why don't we start with that title? What is an income distribution? Yes. What is an income distribution? A lot of things have distributions. We have people are tall, people are short. We have fingers of different sizes. Some people earn a lot of money. Some people earn less money. And the income distribution is just a way to sort of track how many lows and how many highs we have. We start from a very broad and unique data set, which covers almost all earnings that people receive in America from their employers. So that means we see um, a lot of different incomes, uh, some very large, some very small. One goal is sort of to be able to take that very large data, that very big data, and bring it into sort of a smaller set of statistics that preserve the confidentiality of every single individual in there. An extreme version would be high and low, the bottom half and the top half. So another version could be maybe to split it into four bins, bottom quartile, bottom middle quartile, upper middle quartile, and so on. What has guided this project is certain understanding on both the nature of the data we have, but also what the literature is telling us. And also the question policymakers are facing. The literature has told us that it's very important to be able to zoom in into top incomes, precisely because maybe unlike human height, earnings and incomes can have these very top values that tend to shape the nature of income differences, income disparities. So it was very important for us in this project to zoom in a little bit in the top values. So that means in this project, we focus on the top 10%, the top 5%, the top 2%. And when we do this for the whole of the US, we go even further. So for instance, we can make statements about what fraction of the 0.1% earners in America are women and what fraction of those incomes go to them, right? Sadly, gender still matters. is a strong predictor of let's say incomes. And, and so that means that when we do this project, we were also intentionally granular. So being able to split in terms of demographic markers that seem to be systematically correlated with socioeconomic outcomes, one of them in gender, one of them in race and ethnicity, and so on. You mentioned that this data is based on tax returns. It's also based a little bit on demographic data from the Census Bureau. Is that right? Absolutely. The IDAD data set is basically built from three core components. The first one is so two data sources from administrative tax record from the IRS that are already housed inside the Census Bureau. One of them is data from the W-2s. We see, roughly speaking, the last two decades of those. We don't see every single line on those. We basically see the total compensation as well as the wages and salaries component. The second data source is the tax returns that individuals or households file. So these are 1040s. We see adjusted gross income on the 1040 and we see wages and salaries. One of the things that we really wanted to do is to be able to speak in particular about race and ethnicity. 
And that's one of the key informations we don't see in tax data, among other things. So we leverage the linkage infrastructure of the Census Bureau, which allows to identify an individual in tax data and associate that with data that's inside the Census Bureau. And this is data that's typically considered confidential. I can't show up to the Census Bureau. I can't get a download of this data from them. What's it like and how did you get permission to work with such sensitive information. Yeah, that is true. And so part of the vision behind uh, this project is precisely to help with the production of this type of public good that could really sort of help reduce the barriers to entry and who can do this type of research. People have done really good research because they have privileged access to this data. How do you get that access? You have to have special strong status, make sure that people who have access to this data know how to protect the privacy of individuals involved. Every project has to sort of make a statement on the benefits they're producing. And so we, as a team, have a research project where we have that access. There's a network of federal statistical research data centers across the country. I think we now have roughly 35 of them in the nation where researchers have different types of project leveraging some census data, some health data, some other data. And that's very key to the infrastructure. The way it works is you have to go to sort of an RDC, you have a badge, you badge in, it's a secluded environment, you have to, and, and so on. Ours was mostly brewed at the Minnesota RDC <laughs> down the river from the Minneapolis where I sit. And that meant spending hours and hours in windowless offices. And, and there's an entire disclosure process behind what statistics can get out. Ultimately, the rule of thumb here has to be that no underlying private information about individuals could not be revealed by the statistical disclosure. And so, so that's how sort of one works with this. And our goal is, can we release a data set where people don't have to go through all that to answer basic questions and advance the conversation? The first half of the project title is about distributions and the other half is about dynamics. What are income dynamics? Income dynamics is about changes over time as opposed to just differences across people, which was the distribution side of it. We kind of choose a place in income distribution, top versus bottom, and try to make sense about how likely are you to stay at the top or to fall down or to move from bottom to top. And related to that, another aspect of income dynamics is if I take a given group of people, let's say it's a recession time, does everybody fall or do some people fall hard and some people are about the same? So this is actually the distribution of income changes. And so either the data sets provide exactly those two pieces of information. One is how likely, let's say, are women at the top of the income distribution to stay at the top? And how likely are men to stay at the top? That's the mobility dimension. But also if we take women at the top, how skewed or dispersed are their income changes at the top? How skewed are dispersed are the income at the bottom? So income distributions for income dynamics for us is just zooming not into the income in terms of dollars that you have, but the changes in those dollars for different types of income, different types of groups. All right. And what would an example be of, a, say, a particular cell in the table of dynamics? What would a one number represent? One number will say, it's going to be, you choose a state, let's say, California, you choose a year, let's say 2000, you choose an income concept. It could be, let's say, W2 total compensation. Let's say we choose the bottom quartile, so the bottom 25% of people, and then you have to choose your group. So let's assume that we partition by race and ethnicity. So let's say Hispanic, 
So now we are going to look at Hispanic in the bottom quartile of California's wages and salaries description in W2 space in 2015. Now from there, one cell will tell you from that bottom quartile, how many stay in the bottom quartile. Another cell could be how many from the bottom go to the top quartile, right? The other type of income dynamics uh, cell is what I refer to that the distribution of income changes, which is we look at the income changes in dollars and tell you something about how even on even they are. Here, instead of just giving you the fraction that stay at the bottom quartile, we tell you something like, if we were to rank people, Hispanic men from the bottom quartile and measure their income changes, what's the 10th percentile? That number is gonna be around minus $3,000, let's say. That means that the people from the bottom that experience income changes are very negative, in the 10th percent of that is minus $3,000. One key important caveat when in terms of dynamics is that it always matters what time horizon we're looking at. In either you can look at two time horizons. One is a one-year change, the other one is a five-year change, kind of capturing both of these small short-run changes versus these long-run changes. You were mentioning W-2 total compensation, but you also look in this project at the data from 1040 forms or form 1040s. What's the difference in terms of the distributions you see and why would you look at both sets of forms instead of just one or the other? So there are two or three key differences. The first one is that the W-2s have to be filed by the employer. So we are more likely to capture almost the full set of sort of formal work in America as a result. That's unlike the, the tax return filed by individuals or families where people may not file for a variety of reasons. The second thing is also that the notion of income in the W-2 is almost like this notion of market income, but also that excludes a lot of non-taxable income that you don't have to put on those forms. So for instance, at the bottom end distribution, there are a lot of large public transfers that people receive. Uh, SNAP benefits and things like that that they don't have to report, for instance. The other element that's uh, a little tricky, the W-2s are for an individual. The tax returns are for filing units. People could be married and file together. People could marry and file separately. And so one of the things we do in the project is that we actually use another identifier in the sense it's called the MAF-ID, which stands for Master Address File Identifier. Think of it as the housing unit ID, apartment 4B, a district in New York, and so on. And so we use that to rebuild the notion of um, household, but that comes with caveats. What were some of the questions you would have liked to answer through this research, but couldn't because of the confidentiality and privacy constraints? So one limitation is that I think the the intersections of race and gender, race and age and others are really exciting. Because we wanted to have a data that we could do for all states, both large and small, the ability to do more intersections were limited by the desire to be systematic across all states. And I hope that maybe other research projects that had a narrow question where they don't have to produce or at scale a data set can hone into that more. The, research, the literature tells also that it would be really good to think of permanent incomes as opposed to current income. So sometimes it matters just to sort people by not the this year's income, but then more sort of permanent notion of the income. We didn't do that because we didn't want to shrink our sample by forcing people to be there for enough years to do that. But I think for other projects, you could do that. And finally is that because we wanted to preserve this large sample uh, population size, we chose not to go with identifiers that we could have, but we'll only have for a subset. So let's say education and things like that, things that you will capture in data set that are smaller snapshots, right? 
What are some specific findings your team has extracted from Ida that would have been impossible to know otherwise? I'll put a caveat on impossible otherwise, because I think to the extent that others could have been on the other side or have been on the other side, maybe they saw that. But I think there are important lessons we are learning. So on the website, we have a visualization tool that's really cool and, and growing. Uh, we also have articles. One of our articles is called The Relative Prosperity of Foreign-Born Errors. And what we find, for instance, is this fascinating sort of divergence, especially at the very top, where about two decades ago, foreign-born uh, incomes were relatively on par with domestic non-native foreign-born earners, especially at the top. And over the last two decades, they just broke away from each other. And it's really because top foreign-born earners are earning a lot more. And part of that, you think, oh, is it just because we change stuff and we have the type of new foreign-born we have are different? And no, it's actually just current foreign-born workers seem to be just having incomes that are growing faster than initially comparable non-foreign-born earners. I think that was a very fascinating piece on just how at a time where we think that the income divergence we're seeing has kind of maybe stalling a bit, that we're having this very stark difference and the story is not trivial. Another lesson, build system on the IDA native area supplement. Prior to roughly speaking 2005, the story about native areas has really been one of consistent steady income growth, catching up to the rest of the country from big disparities prior. And with this data, what we're able to notice is that that convergence kind of stalled, starting with the Great Recession, where the unemployment impact is bigger in native areas to start with. And interestingly, at that time, overall incomes are still holding up a bit. So the convergence is kind of plateauing. But it's, it's not falling as much as you'll think based on the labor market income. So there's a little bit of a resilience during this great recession, a couple of years. And then after a couple of years, it's not just stalling, it's falling behind. So you go from catching up to your resilience in the recession, meaning relative to how much the labor market are hit, suggesting other sources of income are really working to offset that. And then by 2012, 2013, as the rest of the country is, is booming back again, of course, native countries is going back up. But it's not doing it at the same pace as the rest of the country. That's the second lesson. Third lesson that I thought was fascinating is that the proverbial 70 cents on the dollar in terms of the gender gap holds for a big part of the distribution. At the median, at the bottom core, the 75th percentile, even almost at the 90th percentile. So if you look at the top uh, women's earnings and the top men's earnings, you still have this sort of 70 cents to the dollar ratio. And guess what? Once you zoom past that, it just tanks. By the time you get to the top 1% or top 0.1% or even further, we are talking about less than 50 cents of the dollar. Suggesting at the very top something interesting is happening. And what the data is telling us is that, interestingly, it's a story of fewer bodies, not just lower incomes, meaning we tend to see fewer women at the very top. So it's very interesting to think about how the dynamics of gender differences in income play out at the top, where that is. Of course, you have a Nobel Prize winner that tells us a few things about it. Our data allows you to think about that in other dimensions as well. But those are some of the lessons, and we are learning more things, and we'll be posting on IDA as articles. A big thanks to Elainen for this interview. Our conversation, like all others on the podcast, has been edited to fit into 15 minutes. Additional thanks to Nikhil Sanad, who composed the podcast theme music, to Iwa Katsura for the encouragement, and to you for listening. 
To subscribe to the Data is Plural newsletter, visit data-is-plural.com. 